rise and shine. Okay, good to have you on, Colette. Welcome. We finally got here in the end. So let's talk. So first, before we start, for those that don't know, you're obviously the head golf coach at Chattanooga in Tennessee. Um, I don't know that it's obvious, but I am. Yeah. Uh, We were talking about this before. How long have you been there now? Uh, 13 years. 13 years. Yeah, a long time. Yeah, so and we'll start, obviously, with the quarantine thing because you guys were actually out weren't you when all that happened you were yeah we were on the road uh, heading from one tournament to another so So what tournament were you at we we had we were down playing um in jacksonville florida and it was north florida's event we didn't play very well so it was a a pretty disappointing finish but it was just at the time that you know we've got a lot of international players and they were all hearing things about what was going on in Poland or the Czech Republic or in England, I was hearing from mum what was going on back home and um, no one really knew what what was going to happen over here but we all kind of knew that it was slowly moving its way way over and um, between the matter of, I don't know, 48 hours, maybe 72 hours the the world had completely changed you know, you went from Traveling from one part part of Florida to another to being beckoned to you know beckoned back to to go back to campus and you know you need to start finding flights to get back to all these different parts in the world and you know what airlines are still flying what borders are closing what you know am I going to have yeah. to go to Germany to get into Poland and um, it was just a crazy crazy time and you know I haven't really thought about it a whole lot until right now and all the pieces that you kind of had to put together in a short amount of time, I think I took for granted how, how well the, the girls all coped with it because I guess it was a pretty stressful time. And what's the chat about for you? What have you been hearing in terms of when are they thinking about restarting and when they do restart, what are they thinking about in terms of how they're going to work it logistically? <clears throat> I mean, there's so many different scenarios. I think... I think what everybody's trying to do, they're trying to hope for the best. And, you know, if everything goes well, then, you know, we can have football season or football being American football, because that is the be all and end all yeah. of America. So <laughs> heaven forbid they not have that. But it was interesting. I heard the the NFL come out with yesterday, maybe the day before, how they're they're planning to start their season, I think something like the 9th or 10th of September as they always do and you know they're scheduled for the whole year and then what they've got on top of that or below that is you know the protocols if that doesn't all pan out what it's going to be so there's the the ultimate this is what we want to do and then there's all these different layers as to how they're going to deal with it if it's not if it doesn't all go according to plan of course and and I think as a nation everybody's kind of just doing the same thing so the NCAA is trying to do that and we have a head coaches meeting every Wednesday morning and from week to week you just you just don't know what's happening you know are we allowed back on campus they said that we'd be on campus May 1st now it's May 15th now it's June 1st 
And then you've, you've got all the summer camps, which, you know, America's renowned for, you know, sending their kids away for the summer and all these camps and whatnot. One, I don't know if anybody would be prepared to send their kids away. Maybe they would because they've had to self-teach from home for the past few months. Maybe yeah. they'll be to get rid of them. But then you've got the, the, you know, all the liabilities on top of that that always have when you do camps. But now you've got this COVID pandemic and there's just so many unknowns that you can you can give your best advice and your best hopeful answer. But at the end of the day, absolutely nobody knows at this point in time. Yeah, because I know because the other thing that I imagine you're having to take into account is the fact that I know you've got a lot of international students Mm-hmm. who have went home during mm-hmm. all this and is there a scenario where the golf starts back up but your players aren't able to get into the country i mean it, it's not looking like that because america's so eager to start back up you know they really want to kick start their economy regardless of how many deaths may occur from that which is a sad state of affairs but it's the reality of it. Now, them getting home at the end of the semester, I think, is more of a realistic concern than them getting here. Um, right, okay. I do think everybody, if, all the universities obviously want to have people on campus because if you don't, then they're going to realise, or at least students are going to realise, I can get my education without actually needing to be anywhere, um, which I think for universities is the scariest thing because you could you could effectively get your degree online, but yeah. you would obviously miss out on the, the college experience, which, you know, there's so much value in that. So, I mean, get them getting here, I think, will depend on the borders and the limitations that their countries might have. I don't think getting here is going to be the problem. I think possibly getting home might be the yeah. Might be pick up for everybody, but I I, yeah. I can tell you if we're gonna have a fall season, Chris. I think yeah. our sport of all the sports is probably more likely to happen because we are spread out. You know, yeah. very rarely do you get two golf balls sitting beside each other in the middle of a fairway. I don't know if there will be some kind of protocol for you know getting your ball out the hole or whatever, but I I, I couldn't tell you. I, yeah. I don't think they're going to have football. If they do have football, I don't see them having fans. So I, I, I'm sure ESPN and Fox Sports and all those things are doing everything they can to put contracts together to make sure that the 100,000 people that do go to all these SEC games and Pac-10, Big 12, you, you think of those massive conferences and all the money that's generated from from sports, especially football yeah. and basketball every year. That I, that, that just the thought of them not having that, that revenue is... It's terrifying a lot of people because, I mean, the NCAA is doing all kinds of things to make waivers and things possible for people to financially survive. Because if there is no revenue, then how do you support scholarships and, you know, how do you fund your teams and all that kind of stuff? So there's yeah. there's so many there's so many variables and so many unknowns. It's, it is, it's a scary time, but the grand scheme of things... You know we're sport. We we are lucky we get to live our lives yeah. you know through sports. But you know is it the most important thing in the world? Uh, probably not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know. Um, I think that's one thing I've realised with all this happening that there seems to be a big push for sport more so just because people are wanting something to do rather than should it actually be the first priority. But yeah, so I don't want to harbour on that. So we're gonna 
basically go through your journey in the game. Going to take okay. it right back to the heyday, Gosh. right back to the beginning. So you come from, you obviously were brought up in Dumfries, where there's some lovely golf courses like there is all around Scotland. And you're a very sporty family. Just to say, obviously, football is obviously the main one I imagine, mm-hmm. but yep. your dad plays quite a lot of golf. Yeah. Your older brother is a good golfer. Yeah, younger very good br- golfer. Yeah. Then you've got you, your younger brother, not as good. Um, Actually, Anthony's four minutes older than me, so. <laughs> so your other older brother, terrible, and then you. Yeah. So. I don't. I don't think he would agree with that. But <laughs> I, I think you could safely say that he that he is. <laughs> he. I think he played five holes before he just picked it up and gave up. I took them out to one of the nicest Chattanooga and he did last. What age would you say you started playing golf? That's actually, you need, we need to get back to this point eventually is when I took Francis and Anthony to the country club back, back in August. Cause I think you'll actually like that story. Okay. So I, I, I was knee high to grasshopper when I started playing and I, I remember Claire played, Claire was actually a, a beautiful golfer. She, she was, you know, probably the one I looked, looked up to most in terms of playing because she, she won a lot and got a lot of accolades and, and stuff. But, um, by the time I was kind of coming of age where I was taking a real interest in it, she was kind of transitioning off onto to university. Yeah, and, Claire's, Claire's your older sister. Yeah, but then Francis, Francis was a wonderful player. He still is. But I remember being terrified being on the golf course with him because I think we can both see he's got a bit of a temper but it was it, there were some scary times on the golf course. But I, I really did enjoy being out there on my own to be honest. I liked the dates when I could when I did go and practice, which wasn't as often as it should have been. And the sun was going down and you know, you get your late nights back in Scotland, you can be in the golf course at ten o'clock at night. I, I wasn't. But those later evenings I just remember really enjoying that solitude and that uh, that time where you could just enjoy being on on your own and kind of focus on what you were doing and even to this day I I do enjoy that but yeah played I played a lot of sports growing up soccer uh, football quite a high level lacrosse at quite a, a high level I liked playing table tennis and I rode and I played hockey and I did all these things and I, I, I started playing golf and I was I was pretty good at it and my first love was football but I remember my dad saying that there wasn't really a future for that and you know for for me well, with football yeah. because you know by the time I got to 13 I was playing on the boys team in primary school I did play golf at that point in time but it didn't really interest me that much um, yeah. I remember I loved going out to, to Southern S because every time we got to the seventh hole my dad would produce a Mars bar which was the reason <laughs> that I went out there um, and it didn't matter if it had been in his bag for like three weeks and had grass and stuff <laughs> like it was that and some Lucasade was a real treat and just just being out there I think I would have enjoyed being out there a little bit more but you you know my family I mean we're just Debbie Downers and you know negative is our middle name and I, I just found it very hard being out there with all and I wasn't aware of it at the time but upon reflection that I, I really it wasn't a, a positive environment to be in and to me that wasn't that enjoyable so I really I love being at at football practice and I love doing all that stuff but yeah my dad said to me you know there's really not a future in this for you which you know when I'm 15 16 years old you know you don't really want to hear that but I, I 
I mean, no doubt he was 100% right. And, you know, I'm glad that I was scared of my dad enough to, to listen to him because there wasn't a future in football for me. And if I had pursued that, I'd be, you know, in some kitchen in Scotland cooking for other people. Yeah. But because I, I pursued this and a friend of mine came over, went to uh, a school in Florida and I and I had a I had a year out after uh, finishing high school, which was not my best time academically. Just I'm not interested. I, I, you know, I'd be lying if I told you I, I loved school. But when she came over and and she knew who I was, I remember her contacting me saying, "Clit, this is this is for you. You know, you you can play golf and get an education at the same time." And education has always been such a, a thing for our family your family as well you know you've got to go to university you've, you've got to you know continue your education and that was just going to be hard for me so at what point because you obviously ended up going out to america and studying and continuing your golf at what point did this friend of yours bring this up and at what point did you start thinking you know this was a real possibility yeah so I had that year that gap year where I was working three jobs working in a fish factory working in two different restaurants I was selected for Scottish uh, squad training so I was going up and down you know every other weekend trying to do that but you know doing these other jobs wondering you know where is this taking me kind of thing and she called me and so that year I had, so I would have been 18 years old, doing all those those different jobs. She had called me, or, or I think maybe we hung out at Christmas or something like that, and she was like, you really need to look into this. And so that's what we started to do, and I joined an agency called College Prospects of America. And, you know, they what they still do to this day is they would send your resumes to the different golf coaches and back then, you know, we didn't have, I had an email account, but I didn't have a computer. So it's not like I was checking that every day. Yeah. And then, you know, we would get these prospectuses and stuff coming through in the mail. And there was another Scottish boy at the university I ended up going to. And he came down and, and visited around, I think it would have been May. And, you know, I remember seeing the logo on the golf ball, thinking that that was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. <laughs> and, um, you know, upon reflection, was it, was it the right university for me? academically it probably was was it the best place for me to go for my golf probably not but I, I I am where I am now because of all of that so I can't say that I, I regret it or that I would change any of it for anything because the position I'm in right now I wouldn't I wouldn't trade you yeah know? <laughs> so you ended up going from Dumfries to Alabama for golf yeah. what was what was that like in terms of culturally that change that was I'll never forget it and to think of how naive I, I, I was I got on a plane I'd only been on a plane once before and that was to go on holiday to Greece and here's me 18 years old getting on a plane to go to Atlanta I flew into Atlanta didn't know who was picking me up coach had told me that well thank god I, I traveled with Stephen the other Scottish boy because we got to Atlanta and we must have sat for about an hour and a half two hours before this guy called Juan shows up and uh, he takes us back around this tiny little car two sets of golf clubs and two travel bags two suitcases Juan, his girlfriend, and Stephen and I, and is it this tiny little Honda? And I just remember how hot it was when I walked out that airport, and yeah. it was like walking, you know, when you open an oven and it's just yeah, that hot utter air. wave of hot air, and that's that's what it was like. And I was like, good 
God, you know, I've never I've never felt heat like that before in my life. So we got in the car, make our way, heading out Atlantis, and I remember looking behind me and seeing the Atlantis skyline and thinking that that was really cool. Um, you know, you see that in, in films and stuff. And yeah, then the, what year the billboards. What year this are was we? 2000. This is 2000. This is and the billboards, I remember that that was something that stood out to me because they were, they're just huge. And you've got them now you know, in, in Glasgow and the bigger cities and stuff. But I, I don't I don't recall seeing billboards this size when I was wee. So that was something yeah. to and it, it, I'm not even kidding. We we went into this petrol station and Juan turns around to me and he says, Colette I said, Yes Juan. He said, Do you know what a redneck is? And I said, <laughs> Is it like a farmer? And he said, <laughs> Good answer. He said, No that's a redneck and it was I'm, I'm not even kidding it was it was your quintessential what you imagine from deliverance like the guy had the vest yeah. wife beater there <laughs> was a shotgun in the truck you know he was drinking a beer tossing it in the back and I just remember thinking what have I done like this is this is terrifying and then it took me about a week to figure out how to use the phones. I didn't have any quarters. Uh, I hadn't figured out how to use my calling card yet. So I, it felt like the longest week ever before I finally got to talk to my mum. And then, you know, just reassured her I was okay. And I mean, all I wanted to do was go back, go back home. But I yeah. knew that, you know, I'd made this commitment and I, I had to stick to it because, you know, I, I'd, I'd committed to it. How was your playing career? How would you sum it up in your four years at uni? Um, I'd sum it up, I could, if I could only use one word, disappointing. Is that disappointment in terms of the career that you thought you could have maybe had or just disappointing in terms of what you thought it might be? I think a little bit of both. Uh, I, I think what I anticipated going out there was that I would would have a lot of support and would get a lot of training and um that just wasn't the environment that that we had there. My coach, you know, I love him to bits. Um, he was a basketball guy. You know, he's seven foot tall and mustache. He would the one piece of advice he ever gave me was to clip the T. And I still to this day don't even know what that means. Uh, you know, it, it was it was hard because you had a lot of pressure on yourself to to perform, but. I just didn't feel like I developed as a player at all. I did have to learn a new, a whole new short game because I grew up playing links golf for the most part, and you know having a seven iron, I could I could get up and down from almost anywhere, and all of a sudden I'm in this Bermuda grass, which is like Velcro that would just yeah. take the ball and just just it would just sit down, and then I would feel like grass would grow on top of it, and. You, you just had to learn how to, you know, you, you had to learn what the bounce on a wedge was. And I bought three wedges within the first month of being there because I didn't have wedges. You know, yeah. I had a sand wedge, but I didn't have, you know, a 52 or a 48 or, a, you know, a 60 degree wedge, which everybody had. So there were there were a lot of growing pains that didn't, you know, normally when you get a lot of growing pains, you, you, you develop and, and you become a better player. But I just didn't ever... Didn't ever feel like I did that. My senior year, I, I feel like I did. I was in a much better place mentally. But I had, a, I had a lot of stuff going on in college that is that's a that's a whole other book in itself. But you know, the experience was what it was. But it's it's been good, and and I think that the players that I have come and play for me 
benefit from the poor experience that that, that I had when I went because I, I don't think you should go to college in any sport and after four years not be better than when you got there what was what would you say what your greatest achievement was when you were playing <sighs> my greatest achievement um probably learning how to become a leader right because we didn't we didn't have and I know that sound it probably sounds a bit lame but I didn't I didn't win anything in college which is sad because I won before it and I've won after it didn't I didn't amount to much as a player but I was able to really bring my team together for a common goal and you know get everybody on the same page and by the time I was a senior and I think they would probably all attest to this. They, we all played for each other, which we didn't. We didn't have anyone in the team that did that the first few years that I was there. So my senior year, we actually won seven tournaments. Although we, I didn't win individually, but I contributed to those yeah. two, those seven wins, which is that's a remarkable season by any by anyone star, anyone's standards. So I think being part of that team and the success the team had is probably my greatest achievement so obviously we're now finished senior year and you're now starting to transition to what will eventually become obviously this great (laughs) coaching career but did you always want to be a coach or did you senior have visions of continuing playing or how did that kind of work out? I think we all like to think that we're going to go on and all turn professional. I remember getting an email from my dad. I must have said something to him about, you know, I was thinking about turning professional and, you know, my dad as well as anyone else in the family. He was he was nothing but honest in his response yeah. <laughs> and basically said, no, that's that's not going to happen. Um, and again, the best advice I could have got yeah. And, and yes it's harsh but I, I mean I'm nothing but appreciative these days for for my dad being as harsh as he, he perhaps was because he was honest and and I, I live my life like that now and you know am I sometimes too honest with my players probably well yeah. blame my dad because I get it from him <laughs> Um, so I, I started working that that last year that I played. As soon as I finished, I had to do some summer school, and I started working at the golf course. So I was working in the maintenance department and in the kitchen. So I would do a shift starting at five o'clock in the morning in maintenance, and then I would get that done. And I loved that going out and cutting the grass. And yeah, I always I've always had a. I think a profound appreciation of the golf courses that we play on but to actually have your you know to get your hands dirty and and have to trim the edges of a a bunker and stuff like that I I found a whole new appreciation for it which you know I try to instill in my players because I do think a lot of people take for granted great golf courses just being great. Sounds like a bit of a karate kid moment. Cutting the grass so that you know the ins and outs of the course. Yeah. No, I loved it. Cutting the grass and having the dew, you know, and then making your lines go back and forth. That I thought it was very therapeutic. Um, so I did that, was working, and I actually almost played football, soccer, my fifth year. But if I had done that, coach wasn't going to give me as much of the scholarship as if I would just help him. And as much as I did want to play football and and continue to compete, I'd already started doing like kids camps and summer camps and doing all that kind of stuff. And I really did enjoy that. So I thought, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll just help coach because he's never had an assistant coach. So I, I got to be the assistant coach for him for a year and a half. 
and I got to travel with the men's team and the women's team. And that year that I was helping was actually the year that Danny Willett came on the team. And I remember taking him down to him and his teammates down to a tournament. I think it was at Troy, which is where he got his first individual college win. Um, that's pretty cool. I've, I've you know, I've, I've yeah. coached a, a Masters champion, you could say, which is, is, is pretty cool. So I did that for a year and a half and then... I'd convinced my coach to bring in a sports psychologist who also worked with the Chattanooga men's team here. And I remember, right. you know, becoming really good friends with him. I started to shadow him and, you know, I want you to kind of develop my side of this sports psychology of things. So I did a bunch of courses with him. But um, before that, he'd actually said to me, you know, Chattanooga's looking to start a women's program. You should apply for that. And I, I remember laughing at him. And I said, I'm 24 years old. I said, yeah. I'm, you know, I'm an assistant coach who's 24, who's from Scotland. Like, they're not going to hire me to start a women's program. And he, he just flat out said to me, well, they definitely won't if you don't apply. So I got my resume together, as thin as it was, and um, managed to become one of the three that got in for an interview. And I'll never forget that interview because it was almost like an outer body experience. I felt like I could see myself interviewing, which was really right, okay. weird. And it sounds really cheesy, but I had never had a whole lot of self-belief in myself. And um, I remember going through this interview and seeing these things about, you know, how I would develop players and how I would, you know, instill confidence. And I realized that I didn't always, I didn't have these things myself, but here I was going to have to expect to have other people do that. So I figured I need to start believing in myself if I'm going to expect young people to believe in themselves. I remember that being an absolute shift in who I then became. And uh, and Francis actually called me. I remember driving out of Chattanooga and he called me and he said, how did it go? I said, it went, it went really well, which I don't know that I'd ever said that I'd done anything really well in my life. So that was all very, it was all very weird and, and surreal, but really cool, you know, looking back on it. And then the next the next day I got a phone call saying that I'd, I'd got the job. And this, I was making $5,000 at Jacksonville State. And they had said, no, we're not, you know, we're not going to create a position for Colette. And then this other job offer came along and all of a sudden there was, there was a job offer for me. And I just remember saying to Colette, no, I'm, I'm done. You know, thanks for trying to get the position together for me, but um, I'm heading out. You know, that was, I needed to get out of Jacksonville, Alabama. That To spend so, six years there was, I should have got a medal for that. In 2000, in January of 2006, you then are named the head coach of a new, pro well, I say a new programme. They did have a women's programme right 20 or 30 years prior and it stopped. They had one, but it lasted for, I think, three semesters. For they, all they talk and say... say restart but we never really had one it didn't yeah. i think it competed in one one semester tried to do the homework and you know find the people that were part of it and there's there's not that many and they've told me themselves they only competed one semester so it must have been one of the main attractions to it the fact that you had a clean slate that there was no that it was you had a chance to really make your mark from the beginning yeah, I think it. I think it did, and and being able to recruit with that was it was exciting for you for for recruits. You know, you get to come in and have an instant impact. You don't have to worry yeah. about existing players that are going to start before you because you're going to be the team. So it wasn't an easy sell by any means, 
and I only had two and a half scholarships, which is the incredible part because everybody else has six. So, so to to do what we've done for a very long time with a lot less than what everybody else has, I think says a lot for, you know, the work that we've put in and and the effort that's been made, not just by me, but but you know the the support staff and stuff that that I have to work with. How so that first year? Let's talk about that first year. So, what was that like? Because, like you said, you had experience obviously as the assistant coach at Jacksonville. But how was it now having to basically open up this whole side of it in terms of not just focusing on the game, but I'm sure there's a lot of things that came with the program that even you weren't anticipating yeah. arriving in terms of recruiting in terms of now you know having to kind of work out how do I put not just individual golfers but like you've talked about before making sure that you had that team success what was that like that first year the first year Chris was was a we didn't have a team so I had a I had a, a year and a half really to put together a team so I traveled a lot it was the one year I had a recruiting budget that was worth having um, and yeah. because I wasn't spending it on team travel or equipment or anything like that so if I wanted to take off and go to Washington I went I went to Colombia yeah. South America I went you know I went over to France I went to Sweden I went I went I went everywhere because I had the money to do it and I can see why other programs are able to be so, so, so successful because they have these recruiting budgets that are you know it's it's, a, it's just a pocket of money and now I mean here's me now with you know a three thousand dollar recruiting budget and all my recruiting is done online if I bring if I bring a kid in uh, for an official visit, then that's my recruiting budget gone. But back then, that first year, I had I had all this money to to recruit, so that's what we did, and and that's why we were able to build such a solid team for that first year. So I had a player from Australia, actually, she was from Coffs Harbour, New South Wales, and then Christine, her, so her name was Emma De Groot. She just got inducted into the Hall of Fame here at UTC, and then I had Christine Wolf on the team. You've been to you've been skiing at her place in Austria. Uh-huh. She's on the European tour. She was fourth in the Order of Merit last year, and um, so she's doing she's doing wonderful things as a professional. Yeah, because Christine represented Austria, didn't she, in the Olympics? She did, yeah. And it's a shame, you know, with all this going on, she was going to get to do it again this year. She, I think, she was already yeah. set for that. So yeah, I've got a masters champion and you know an Olympian. You know, and yeah, so it's pretty cool. <laughs> so like talking about obviously the challenges of being a coach and having to you know not just obviously when you're at college program you obviously need to focus on the student aspect as well in terms of I know firsthand as well as yeah. you know that. If you don't, if you don't do your studying, you don't play, which was a foreign concept to me when I moved over. But so how is that in terms of because you obviously aren't teaching them? How difficult has it been in terms of trying to coach up not just athletes where it's their job, their living, but having to coach up these girls who nine times out of 10, you're getting at 18 odd years of age and having to most a lot of them because you obviously like we said before have a lot of international students a lot of them are away from home a lot of them are away from their families and their families probably look on you to try mentor them and be there for them not just on the golf course but off it so how what are some of the challenges that not even what are some of the challenges how difficult is it to make sure you're focusing on both sides of it I think I mean historically we've 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 had a lot of success 
off the golf course. You know, I, I always try to have the highest GPA in the department. And I, I always insist that, you know, we're, we're competing for the, the highest team GPA in the country. So when I'm recruiting these players, I'm making sure that they understand that there's an academic standard that's part of this program that will continue once you get here. And I think it's, I think it a lot, <laughs> I don't mean to, I don't mean to generalize here, but I think the girls take their academics a bit more seriously than the boys do anyway even even if they are hoping to turn pro I mean realistically especially for golfers you know the amount of money that a female golfer can make versus a male golfer is just and then that's the same that's the case in any sport but yeah. you can't emphasize enough of, of really what it takes to be at that upper upper echelon level to be making the kind of money where you can live a good life I think assuring the players and their parent that you know, yes, they're coming here to play golf and yes, we're paying for it. There is this academic standard which we expect you to uphold. And if you don't, then, you know, things like playing time and stuff will, will come into come into play. But once they get here and they realise that, you know, everybody is on board for this, it's easy for them to jump on the bandwagon because they don't want to be the one that, you know, pulls that team GPA down. Because when you only have eight girls, one one GPA can really hurt you. Um, so I think as the as the classes grow and and they get to know each other and it kind of gets just passed down to the to the younger ones and and the emphasis of you don't get to slack off, you don't get to not go to class. That's not that's not what this is. So you know, luckily I've I've not really had many problems with that, but it is definitely something that we try to stay on top of. We obviously touched on there, you know, you've had some really successful golfers come through your program and went on to do great things both in and outside the game. So what is it when you're traveling to your Columbia's, your Washington's, what is it you look for in a player? What is, what are the kind of both on the course and outside the course? Yeah. Well, the, the beautiful thing about our sport is you know, a lot of a lot of recruiting is based on, and and this is for every other sport. You know, someone's opinion. It's it's like talent. You know, you you might rate a player higher than I do, but see if your player averages sixty nine and my player averages sixty nine, then you can't really tell them apart. Because the, the beautiful thing about what we have is solid facts and numbers and statistics that that that's undeniable. So, I mean, obviously, the first thing you do is you look at what can they do? What do they shoot? How consistent consistent are they? And from that, you, you figure out, well, how do they get around the golf course? You know, are they are they long off the tee? Or do they have good short games? Can they putt? Because it's, it's I, I think it's a lot easier to teach someone how to chip and putt well than it is to gain 40 yards. So I, I look at you know, as, as long as they have the basic fundamentals and a good golf swing that you don't get tired of looking at, then, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of growth and a lot of stuff you can do to help develop that player. But then on top of that, you've just got to think of, you know, personality and, you know, having enough conversations with them that you think that they are the kind of person that you think you can get along with. And are they going to fit with the kind of culture that we have on our team? Are they going to be a good influence? Or it's just it's just a lot of background checks which you know if you're doing your due diligence and you're doing your homework on players then hopefully you can see between the lines and, and check out their instagrams and their facebooks and yeah. whatnot you know just just hope that you can get to know the player enough that 
you're really getting to see who they are and not who they want you to see, um, yeah. which is the hardest part now because there's so many ways you can you can hide. And and I can imagine. I mean, I know it's it's not an exact science because you know you get millions that, especially in America, they get people they get paid for drafts and scouting mm-hmm. talent and. I don't think anybody, even to this day, there's always one or two that slip and people get them luckily rather than anything else. Right. Can you remember any time you've saw a player or took on a player that maybe statistically or fundamentally wasn't one that was on the books, but you just looked at them and there was something about them that you thought, does that happen often that there's just somebody that... Honestly, Chris, and this isn't not not trying to toot my own horn, almost all the players that we get are those players because, you know, domestic players don't want to come to Chattanooga because they want to go to Tennessee or Alabama or Georgia, you know, those big conference schools. And they understand football season and basketball season and that's the college experience that they want to get. So recruiting domestic players is very difficult. But even now recruiting international players because you have the internet and, and access is so available... They know the difference between these bigger schools and these little, these smaller schools, these mid-major schools. So every player that we've ever had has been someone that's had to come in and had to develop. Not none of them, and I'm not, I'm not trying to diss any of the players that we've had. I love them all dearly, but none of them were being recruited by Duke or Alabama or you know any of those teams so that they're always you always have to find something within them that you think you can make a difference in their game to get them to that next level speaking of that obviously you had that those few years when you had talking just because you mentioned them emma and christine who were both on the same team they were there Mm -hmm. at the same time which was obviously a very successful time for your program with only having at that time three scholarships so you're trying to field a team when everybody else has six and you've got two full scholarships invested in two players and then you've got one scholarship split between three people so just think of the quality of the player on the backside of that and i'm not trying to guess any of them but to, to have achieved what we achieved with as much money as we had to invest is it's unheard of. And so when you have down years on the back of, especially when you know what it's like to be successful and you've maybe built, I mean, you're, what, four-time SOCON Coach of the Year? Four oh, time? I don't know. That's all political. <laughs> but is, obviously you know what it's like and what a successful team looks like. And when you have those down years, one, how tough is it during those down years and two is it it's not easy to turn around but do you feel like you are missing only one or two I do and this year will be the first year that we've we've used the six so we'll have we'll have eight players on our squad six of which are on as close to a full as you can get so having having that amount of depth like we travel with five so having six players that you can choose from and, and in our case seven and eight that are going to be competing for that spot that the, um, the amount of competition that you can now breed within your own team I think will speak volumes and and, and not that and I see what you were trying to get at when you were saying like you know to have we haven't fallen that far but we've fallen but the way I, I try and look at it and try and make a spin a positive if I if I took the team's that had come second in these last four years and had them 
13, 12, 11, 10 years ago, the teams that I have now would have beaten those teams. But the level in which women's golf is at now, it's it's not good enough. Um, which to me is a positive because it speaks of the parity that we now have in women's golf and how much depth there is that there wasn't before. You know, we've had years that we've we've averaged 295 and 296, which is a good average in college. When we were winning conference championships with, you know, these great players, we were averaging over 300. So we're six, seven, eight, nine, ten shots better than we were. Yeah. But the other teams have gotten better as well. Yeah. So our good is, hasn't been good enough. I can imagine, especially, I mean, anybody that plays golf knows how temperamental it is in terms of one round to the next. You know, it's not a case of you don't you very rarely, I think, I don't know if you'd agree with this, very rarely get a player that is on song for an entire season. Yeah, that's that's I mean, that's you're now talking about the top 15, top 20 teams in the country. You know, they've got those players that are going to show up for three rounds week in, week out. If I can get one or two players to show up for three rounds week in, week out, that's that's success, you yeah. know, because it's it's such a hard thing to do and to be consistent at that level is just extremely difficult. But that's that's the end goal. That's you know, that's that's where you want your players to get to to the point where they can do that. So yeah. they might not be able to do it as freshmen, but by the time they're doing it, you know, you do look for by the time they are seniors that you can you can give me three rounds every week. So I think this is a good point to throw in before I go on to the future, you know, and what in terms of coming up for you. You got married this summer mm-hmm. in which your family came over from Scotland for the wedding which did include your two brothers so let's Uh talk about this round that we mentioned at the start of your brother Francis who lives in America as well and Anthony when you took them for their round of golf so I I, I didn't ever get the chance to take you out to any of our our golf courses but you've been to our facility but we've got some really really nice golf courses here in Chattanooga that's one of the reasons I've stayed here because we get to play these golf courses week in week out but the one closest to town to where we live is right on the river and it's it's immaculate it's beautiful the greens roll at like 13 14 in the summer and um, very difficult to get on but I know the pro really well Bruce and I called him and I said hey Bruce you know if I need to get a member to try and get us on I'll, I'll do that but if you know if there's any way you can get me on with my two brothers I'd really appreciate it so in order for him to to count the rounds as free rounds he had to list them as PGA professional <laughs> <laughs> so we rock up to this country club and it's it's about I don't know it was probably like 100 degrees or something so they're not exactly dressed like pros and they rock up there with our you know fallen apart Chattanooga golf bags that we have Anthony was playing with my assistant coach Monica's clubs and um, so all the (laughs) the staff of the pro shop had come out to see you know I wonder who these pros are (laughs) I don't remember who teed off first but I mean, it was just a fresh air shot after a fresh air <laughs> shot. And I was dying laughing. And then I think Anthony hit one straight into the river on the right. And the pair of them were just mortified. <laughs> but um, 
I, th- I don't know if I told them before they teed off or after, if maybe that had added some of the nervousness Pressure. to what they were doing. But oh my gosh, they could not have gotten off that tee fast enough. I don't even know if either of them were in play, but the, I- I'll never forget looking up at that pro shop and them all just kind of looking to each other like, where <laughs> where. <laughs> Where do these throws come from? Because I need to get in that match. The first oh. tees are bad when you're by yourself, never alone, when people are expecting you to be pros. So, touching on, yeah, obviously it was a big summer for you, Colette, and a lot is obviously changing. So what, where, what's next? Where are you envisioning? There, what's still to achieve, not what's next? I was actually talking to, to Monica uh, about this a few weeks ago, and when I started the programme, I had this this list of you know what I want to achieve and although it's taken a lot longer than than I'd hoped the only thing at this point in time that I feel like me needs to be better for me to to feel like I can leave and I can set this program up for nothing but success would be enhancing our recruiting budget and enhancing our travel budget which would allow us you know we can't fly we can't afford to fly but you have we, got a pretty we, nice pimped out bus I might add we do have a lovely bus, and that was that was you know one of the top things I, I set about putting together. You know, I needed to get raise enough money for this bus. You know, when you when you look at the things that we have, that I have managed to do, and you know, getting the bus, helping raise the money for our practice facility outside, getting us to the point where we have six scholarships having an assistant coach building an indoor facility which you know that that in itself has been a project but to be able to have all of those things and know that I had I had a big piece and a, a massive influence in all of those things it, it's it, it helps me look back and and think okay I don't have as many rings as I would like but you know I've, I've, I've put together a program that that I can be proud of and you know it was it was my intention to go to my athletic director and say, right, now's the time. I want, you know, 15 grand in my recruiting budget, but I don't think right now is the time <laughs> yeah. with COVID and everybody's getting cut. I might have to wait a year or two. But, you know, I, I'll, I'll keep asking because if, if I don't ask, then, you know, no one's going to offer to give you more money. So I've been extremely fortunate in this town and and to be surrounded by the, the people that I'm surrounded by. And, you know, they, they helped sponsor my, my green card and, and all my visas for all those years. So I feel somewhat indebted to to the university. And without them supporting me and, and having that initial belief in me, then, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't be where I am today. And in yeah. terms of the future, I honestly don't know. Do you still enjoy coaching? Do you still enjoy the day-to-day grind of it all? I, I love the player development. I, I will admit that, you know, recruiting is the bread and butter of what we do. It's not my favourite thing, <laughs> but um, you can't be negligent on it because if you do, then you fall so far behind. Um, but now that I have Monica, you know, she's yeah. my recruiting coordinator. So, you know, every day I'm Thanks. sending her players, you know, have a look at this one, have a look at this one. And instead of me having to do the day-to-day, uh, okay, I want to see this one, I want to learn more about this one, or I need to write to that one and say, you know, thanks for your interest, no thanks. Uh, it's it's just made a world of difference having that kind of support. I've had I've had an assistant now for one year, and I don't, I honestly don't know how I did what I did on my own for as long as I did, because it is a lot of work. And before, you know, before I met Rachel, I, I didn't, I didn't have a life. <laughs> so, you know, I was able to put everything into it. But it is, it is nice now 
being able to kind of switch off and have a life away from it and and I think it makes me appreciate having it a little bit more perks of being the boss eh I is uh, <laughs> quite enjoy it well that's I think a good note so one the last thing we'll finish on Colette so see anybody that's maybe in a similar position to you either it be moved to another country whether it be America or something whether it be a coach not just in golf but in any sport what would maybe the one bit of advice that you've learned over everything we've talked about that you would wish the younger you knew mm. I don't know if it's something that I wish the younger me knew because I would I mean obviously I've been persistent obviously I haven't given up you know there 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 have been times where that's all I wanted to do but I think my parents instilled in me that you know you don't give up and that you do work hard and you know if you do those things then you know I remember having a a thing I think my dad gave it to me on my pin board in college and it was the it was green and white hoops and it just said good things come to those who wait and the days that you know just really I didn't enjoy in college I would look at that and I would I would think I think my dad looks at that and thinks when is 67 gonna happen (laughs) again but um, I, I would look at that and I would think okay I'll, I'll be patient, I'll keep working hard, I'll keep doing what I think is the right thing and I'll just keep doing and, and that's what's got me here today. I, I don't know that I would tell myself that to a younger self because, you know, that's that's just who I've been my whole life. So No, well that's a good note to finish on and thanks for being on, Colette, I appreciate it. Thanks, Chris, I, I appreciate uh, you talking to me and humouring me to think I'm <laughs> something special. <laughs> No, you are, but thanks for being on and thanks everyone for listening.